0: So Kendall's going to be preaching for uh, this morning. He's got a great story, great background, and uh, just so grateful. So thank you yeah. for uh, being willing to share yeah. the good news with us this morning. Yeah, no problem. Thank you for having me, Brian, and Faith Lutheran. Wow. It is a blessing to be with you all this morning. You have no idea just how much it's impacted us. <laughs> I, you know, Pastor Brian and all you all have done such a great job of praying for us, supporting us, and it's a rare thing. It's a very rare thing to have people that are passionate about supporting other churches, even of different denominations and things like that. So it really means a lot to us, and we're really blessed to be here this morning. Um, John asked me this morning if, you know, this camera in front of my face would, uh, <laughs> would distract me, and I said, uh, we have about 35 children at our church that are screaming all the time. This will be this will, not, this will not affect me. So um, if you want to open up your Bibles with me this morning, we'll be uh, getting to Hebrews chapter 1, if you want to turn there. Um, and yeah, like Brian said, and as you guys know, we've been, you guys have been going through this series called Counterfeit, where you've been looking at these various errors that have arisen, even in the early church and even that are present to this day. In the first week, Brian talked about Pelagianism or legalism, which is a big word that basically means that works are added to salvation, right? That to be made right before God, it's not just about what God has done in Christ, but it's about what you need to do, how you can work your way up to God. And so Brian addressed that, adding works to salvation. And then Last week, I believe he talked about antinomianism, another large word. Brian's really hard on you. I heard he went through a whole book of the Bible last week. I mean, wow. No, I'm just kidding. But antinomianism, that's where the law is taken away from the Christian life, that it doesn't really matter what you do, that God's law doesn't really matter at all. It has no place in the Christian life. And so this week, we're going to be talking about the open canon heresy. I'm not sure what's behind my back. Nothing. Okay. Uh, The open canon heresy, which is that essentially people adding to the scriptures or taking away from the scriptures. And this is a critical issue. And some of you might be thinking maybe about this whole series, really. What's the point? (laughs) I don't know. You know, we're going through these heresies and these errors. I didn't sign up for a seminary class or something like that. But it's actually very critical that we understand these things and understand why they're important and how they affect our lives. Because the truth is, these errors are not just in the academy. They're not just um, out there. They're very subtle. And they penetrate our lives in very subtle ways. And as I was studying this week, I was reminded of the garden, and some people from our church might laugh a little bit. I'm always going back to the garden, the garden of Eden, not my garden at home. I don't have one. Um, (laughs) I was reminded of the garden of Eden because what happens in Genesis 3? God has created the heavens and the earth, this glorious creation. He creates Adam and Eve, and he places them in the garden, and they can have the fruit from any tree in the entire garden except for one. And he gives him a command. He says, do not eat of this tree lest you die. And then in chapter three in Genesis, it says this. It says that the serpent was more subtle than any other creature in the garden. And then Satan goes on to speak to Eve and he says, did God really say that you cannot eat from any tree in the garden? And Eve says, no, he didn't say that. He said, that we cannot eat from this one tree and we cannot even touch it lest we die. God never said you can't touch it. (laughs) He only said you cannot eat of it. So right there we see Eve adding to God's law, legalism. It's very interesting to think about. And then right after that, what does Satan say? What does he say to her? He says, we can't eat of this lest we die. And he said, you won't surely die. He's taking away from God's law, antinomianism. So we see these first two errors, but what's the first thing that the serpent says to Eve? Did God really say? Questioning God's word. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. Questioning God's word, the sufficiency of God's word, the inerrancy of God's word, the finality of God's word. Did God really say that? That's at the heart of so many errors, and it's not only in the Garden of Eden, but it's very much with us today. So, if you want to, yeah, like I said, open up to Hebrews chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 1 and 2 this morning, and as we'll see, hopefully, that these temptations to doubt God's Word, to add to God's Word, to take away from God's Word, are not just old, are not just in the Garden, but they're very present today, but hopefully we'll see that God has spoken in his word, that even though we might have lots of questions about what's in the word, what do these things mean, that God has spoken through the person and work of his son, and we have a sure and steadfast anchor in that. So Hebrews chapter one, verses one and two, if you want to follow along with me. The writer to the Hebrews says this, long ago, At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom also he created the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we get to set aside each week to come to learn about your word, to see the glory of the gospel and the glory of Christ. And if we're honest with ourselves, each week we come weak, sinners in need of your grace, and there's so many distractions in our hearts and minds, and so we ask that by the power of your spirit this morning, you would help us to see the truths of your word, to help us to see the sufficiency of scripture, and that we would not be led astray or deceived, but that we would trust in you, God, in your word, and in your power to save. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. So yeah, um, big, heavy topic, the sufficiency of scripture. What does this mean? Maybe some of you are a little bit overwhelmed this morning, but we'll see this morning that, again, this is not Satan's not very smart. <laughs> he uses the same things over and over again. So these errors that Brian has been talking about, that I'll be talking about, they're not new. As the writer, to, um, as the writer of um, Ecclesiastes says, there's nothing new under the sun. And so we'll see the importance of Scripture, the sufficiency of it, its authority, and how we can protect ourselves against people that would seek to undermine it. So we'll look at three things today. We'll look at what is Scripture We'll look at what is our authority, and then finally, how can we protect ourselves from the errors or those that seek to uh, undermine those authorities and Scripture itself. So first, we'll ask the question, what is Scripture? What is Scripture? What is the Bible? You know, I think if you were to ask somebody on the street, what is the Scripture? What is the Bible? They might say it's a collection of 66 books taken over 2,000 years or however many years to write. And it would just sort of be a very human answer, right? It's God's word, maybe they would say. But if we think about it, what is scripture? What is it in its essence? Is it just human writings? Is it just wisdom about how to live a better life, how to be more moral? That's not what scripture tells us. Scripture tells us what scripture is. And in 2 Timothy, scripture sa- or, sorry, Paul says in scripture that all scripture is God-breathed, that it's God's revelation of himself that God could have chosen not to speak to us. He could have chosen not to say anything about who he is or what he's done, but he hasn't. He's chosen to speak to us and he's given us his holy word. And this is God's self-disclosure. He's telling us things about himself. And there's two ways that God does this. One is what we call general revelation. This is creation. When you look outside, you see a tree You're learning things about God, that he's good, that he's powerful, that he's wise. These things are orderly. There's many things we can learn from looking at a tree. But there's other things that you can't learn about looking at a tree. Don't look at a tree for too long. People will think you're strange. But what can't you learn from looking at a tree? You can't learn that you're a sinner, that Christ is a good Savior. All these things that we see revealed to us in Scripture. So we can't just have general revelation But we need something else. We need what's called special revelation, which is God's revealed will in his word. And so we have these two books, the book of nature and the book of scripture. And this is what scripture is. It is God's special revelation. It is revealed will. And we see that it's divinely inspired, that it's not merely at its base, a human document, but it is a divine one. Even though it was written by men, As they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, we see that ultimately this is God speaking to his people through his word. So this is what scripture is. All 66 books are God's revelation to his people. And so we have to ask the next question. If scripture is God's revelation to us about himself, about who he is and what he's done, what is our authority? What binds our conscience? What orders our worship? What leads us in the Christian life? That's the next question we need to ask is, what is our authority? And this is not a new question, right? If we go back to the time of the Reformation, in the 15 and 1600s, this was not a new question for them either. During that time, during the Reformation, think of Martin Luther, all these great reformers. There was a lot of questions about what is the authority of the Christian. Is it tradition? Is it the words of the Pope? Is it the Apocrypha? Is it all these other things? Or is it Scripture alone? And so out of the Reformation came these five solas. Sola, Latin, meaning alone. Many, maybe some of you have heard of these five solas. There's five of them: sola fide, faith alone, sola gratia, grace alone, sola Christos. Christ alone, solo dea gloria, to the glory of God alone and sola scriptura, scripture alone. That it is we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone to the glory of God alone, and this is all revealed in scripture alone. Because there was many attacks on the church at that time. There were you're saved by your works, you're saved by your merit. You not only need to worship God, but Mary and the saints and all these other things. And there were so many attacks on the authority of the scriptures and on how is someone made right with God. And so out of the Reformation came these five solas. And some of us might be familiar. I think last week actually was the 500-year anniversary of the famous words of Martin Luther at the Diet of Worms. He was being questioned And he was bringing up all these things, the 95 theses, all these things that we remember, this theology of the Reformation, and he was being asked to recant, to take it back. And what did he say? On that famous day, he said, my conscience is bound to the word of God. I will not recant. (laughs) He was convinced that scripture was what bound his conscience, what was his ultimate authority, not the words of the Pope or tradition or all these other things. That it was the word of God. And a big part of the Reformation were these verses that we read today in Hebrews chapter 1. We see in Hebrews 1 and specifically 1 and 2 the finality of God's word. That it is final. It's his final word to us. That we don't need to look for other things to add or take away from God's word. But we have God's word and it's complete. It's final. And you see, if the verses are up behind me, maybe not, but if we could throw them up there, we see these two verses in verse 1 and 2, and they're sort of these parallel verses. What does he say in verse 1? That long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And then in verse 2, he says, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So three things to point out in here. Number one, God spoke, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, both in the law and the gospel, God spoke, God revealed himself, he told his people who he is and what he had done. So we see this unity of scripture that the Old Testament and the New Testament are not in contradiction, but they are unified, that both times God has spoken and chosen to reveal himself, who he is and what he's done. But we also see the differences in verse one and verse two. Verse one says long ago, verse two says now. Verse one says he spoke by the prophets in many times and in many ways, but verse two says he's spoken now by his son. And so we see the differences here that they are not the same, that we see the finality of this revelation and that's the third thing, is that we see God has spoken to his people by Christ, by his son. And so we have no more need for new revelation. We have God's word, we have his Holy Spirit, and God's revelation to us is complete. And so we don't need to add to it, we don't need to take away from it. Yes, we need to pray that the Spirit would illuminate the word to bring it to light so we can understand it, but we don't need to add to it, it's complete. And In these verses, and really in all of Scripture, we see that Scripture alone is the final authority of the Christian, that it's sufficient, and we don't need to take away from it or add to it. And so we've sort of built this foundation. We've said what Scripture is, and that it's our authority. But we have to keep coming back to that question that Satan asked in the garden, this subtle question that, did God really say that? I know some of you are, or maybe all of you are going through this Bible in a Year program, which is amazing. (laughs) It's amazing that you've been doing that and pushing yourselves to read the scriptures more. And so often, if we're honest with ourselves as we're reading, maybe that question has (laughs) popped into your head. Did God really say that? (laughs) Did God really do that? Did that really happen? And so maybe it's subtle like that, or maybe it's um, even bigger than that. And this is really the ancient work of Satan is to deceive us, to trick us, to get us to question God's word and the completeness of God's revelation to us. Whether it's in the first century or the 21st century, whether it's um, the heresy of Marcionism or Mormonism, whether it's the Catholic church or the hyper charismatic church, all of these at some level seek to take away or add to the revelation that God has has given us. And so I use some big words there. What's Marcionism? (laughs) That is the heresy that came up in the second century where someone said, we just need to get rid of the Old Testament. Let's just take it out, delete it. (laughs) There's bad stuff in there. That doesn't look like the God of the New Testament. Let's just get rid of that. And that was condemned early on. Or maybe it's, maybe Mormonism is a more current issue that we see today. We lived in Utah for four years and there are Mormons everywhere, as you can guess. <laughs> and there's these temples and there's all these things that are going on there and they are adding to God's revelation, right? They, they not only believe in the word, but they believe in the book of Mormon, the pearl of great price, all these other extra revelations that Joseph Smith gave them. And so whether it's taking away from scripture or adding to scripture, these are the things that are coming up these errors that are coming up and we need to be aware of these things. And it's hard because usually the people that come to us that would cause us to question God's word are some of the nicest people in the world. We, we lived out there. Mormons are some of the nicest people you'll ever meet. Externally, they are great. Internally, they are nice people. They're sweet. They are nice neighbors, all these things. Maybe you have some neighbors um, that are Mormon and they're the nicest people But what ends up happening when we say Scripture plus is we end up distorting not only who God is, but the gospel of Christ. We end up distorting not only who God is, but the gospel of Christ. And when we add to Scripture, whether it's in Mormonism, or maybe it's what the Pope says, or maybe it's these new revelations that prophets are bringing, in all of these cases... The same thing happens when we add to God's final revelation. We end up following the new thing. Even if it contradicts the Bible, we usually end up going with the new thing. What's new? What's fresh? And we have to be careful of this. And a great example of this is in Mormonism. What do the scriptures say about salvation? We're saved by grace apart from works of the law. Ryan talked about that beautifully a couple weeks ago, that we're saved by grace apart from works of the law. What does it say in the Book of Mormon? What did Joseph Smith say? You're saved by grace after all that you can do. So you need to do enough good stuff, and then grace will kick in and take you that extra 1% or 90% or however much you've been slacking. And so we can see that these things are in direct contradiction. They don't line up. But what often ends up happening is we go with the new thing. We go with um, this new revelation, with what's been added to scripture. And Paul has harsh words in the book of Galatians for those that would seek to bring a different Jesus, a different gospel. He would say they are anathema, accursed. And so we need to be very careful that what we're hearing and what we're succumbing to is not a different Jesus and is not a different gospel. And You might say, it's easy to point at all these other things, and it's easy for us to say, oh, the error is out there, and so we can kind of protect ourselves. But it's usually more subtle, as we saw in the garden, right? The serpent was more subtle (laughs) than any other creature. He didn't come straight to Eve and say, don't believe anything God says. He just caused doubt to come into our mind about what he had said. And so this is very true of us that oftentimes... It's a lot more subtle. So maybe we don't say Joseph Smith was right, but maybe we say things like this. Maybe you've heard something like this. God just wants me to be a good person. That that's how I'm made right with God. I just need to be a little bit better. That God honors good people, and if I'm a good person, then God will save me. Or if I just do more right than good, that will make me right before God. And so these are subtle ways that these additions to Scripture can corrupt the gospel of Christ. And this is important that we understand this because every other religion, every other worldview believes this, that the way we're made right with God is by what we do, where Christianity is wholly different. We are made right with God, not by what we have done, but by what Christ has done not by our good, wo- good works, but by the good works of another, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we know from the scriptures that no one is good but God, that we need a Savior, that we're sinners, as Jeff talked about, that we're sinners and we're in need of a Savior. And so even though Satan's plan in the garden, it worked. <laughs> he deceived Adam and Eve. He caused them to doubt God's word to doubt his goodness, to separate God from his law. And they thrust all of humanity into sin. Why do we deal with the coronavirus and all these other things in our lives? It's because of the fall. It's because of an Adam and Eve's sin, them doubting God's word. And so even though Satan's plan worked, we see that this is not outside of God's plan. right? That he has had a plan before the foundation of the world to save a people for himself. That he would send Christ, the one mediator between God and man, to make it right. To stand between them and God and give them his perfect righteousness. And by his death on the cross, take away their sins. Take away the curse and punishment of what they, des- what they deserve, what we deserved. And this is all the work of the incarnate son of God. What does John call him in the Gospel of John? The Word. The Word made flesh. So Christ, the Word of God, tells us the way of salvation. We have it revealed to us and in, in Scripture. We have a sure and steady hope for our souls, and this is revealed in Scripture alone. So as we come away today, three things to point out, three things to try to apply this to our lives, because I think sometimes if we're honest, Yeah, heresy, antinomianism, plagianism. (laughs) What does this have to do with how I live my life throughout the week or how I come to worship on Sundays? Three things. The first one is that everything we do in our lives, and especially on Sundays, is to be ordered around God's Word. That we don't have to make up new ways of worshiping God, we have God's Word (laughs) that reveals to us how to worship. And everything we do as Christians, and especially on Sunday, is centered around the Word. We pray the Word, we sing the Word, we pray the Word, we preach the Word, we see the Lord, see the Word in the Lord's Supper and baptism. All these things we see the gospel proclaimed. We see the Word of God, and it protects us. It keeps us from trying to invent new ways of worshiping God or coming to God. We have. God's revelation, and so it's in God's word that we see who God is, what he's done, but we also see who we are, (laughs) that we are sinners in need of saving, in need of a savior. So that is the first thing. The second thing is that trusting in the sufficiency of scripture, scripture alone, protects us from the errors that Brian has talked about and will talk about. All these different doctrinal errors that creep their way into the church. Scripture alone protects us from this. And so all these questions that come up, maybe it was during the Reformation, or maybe it's in our world today, how are we made right with God? Is it by what we do? Is it by going out and serving the community? Is it by paying enough money? How do we need indulgences? What do we need? How are we made right with God? Scripture alone protects us from all these errors. That justification by faith alone is the only way of salvation. It's what's revealed in the scriptures and it's how we protect it. And all these other errors will seek to distort God and the gospel. But in God's word, we have a full revelation of who he is and what he's done for us. And then finally, scripture alone shows us the sufficiency of Christ and his work that even though we are sinners and we deserve God's wrath, he has poured it out on the person of his son so that we might be made right with him, that we don't need new words from God, that as Hebrew says, he has spoken to us by his son. There is a finality to God's revelation. And so maybe you struggle with sin in your own life. Maybe you're struggling with suffering. Maybe you're asking yourself these questions about how can I be made right with God? Or I'm reading the Old Testament and I don't know if I believe it. I don't believe that this is God's word. God has given us his word. He's given us the gospel. And we have great and precious promises for the believer that even in our sin and in our suffering, we have hope. And I'm reminded of the great hymn, How Firm a Foundation. I don't know if any of you are familiar with this. It says these great words. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. That soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. That we have a sure, firm foundation for our hope, for our faith in the Word of God, and God will not forsake us. He's given us His Word. It's a grace, <laughs> it's a blessing. And we have a foundation for our souls. We have an anchor that when we doubt, when we fear, God has given us promises that we can go to. He's given us assurance of our pardon, absolution. All these things are found in the word of God. They're not found in nature. They're found in God and in his word. And so we have a great hope. We have a firm foundation and we can pray for the spirit to illuminate these things. God, I don't understand why these things are written down. Help me to see them by the eyes of faith and trust in the God of the word and the God of of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, would you pray with me this morning? Lord, we thank you for this time that we get to set aside each week to come and hear about who you are and what you've done. And it's revealed to us in your word alone. And if we're honest, we often fail to believe the precious and great promises that you've given us in your word or our faith is weak and we we can't believe that they would be true of us, of weak sinners like us. Help us, Lord, to by faith, believe that it is not by our works, but by the works of Christ that we are made right with you. And help us to trust in the sufficiency of your word, that we don't need new revelations. We have your word, that it is a sure and steadfast anchor. And even though it pierces us and cuts to the division of bone and marrow, you heal us with the sweet balm of your gospel. Help us to trust in that this morning. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen.